We have two passages in the gospel according to Matthew. The first from chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. And the second from chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. Hear now God's word, beginning in 26, 36 through 56. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And continuing in Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, 
and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Father, whose will it was that your Son would bear the weight of sin on the cross, send your Holy Spirit to us that by gazing into this wondrous mystery, we might be assured of your great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the chapters leading up to this passage in Matthew chapter 26, after the triumphal entry, you will see uh, nothing but conflict. The last week of Jesus' life, the, the beginning of it, uh, it, it enters, as he enters into Jerusalem, is, is magnificent. And there are people who are cheering him on, and there are palms laid down for him because he's a king and and the crowds are are loving him and and from that moment on there's nothing but conflict and one thing after another he is faced with now most of us do not enjoy conflict Uh, some of us who do are uh, perhaps borderline sociopaths most of us do not because conflict is exhausting, and, and that doesn't mean it's not healthy. There, there are times when we, we need to enter into conflict, but, but Jesus in this week, nothing but opposition and rhetorical traps on the part of his enemies and clashing. And so uh, here, here's what happens briefly in the week that Jesus, um, uh, we, we find Jesus here this evening. He, he cleanses the temple because in the temple, the place where God is to be worshipped, they are buying and selling things and preventing the poor from worshipping. And so he overturns the tables. He flips them over and, and casts all of these people out of the, the temple. And, and the, then they challenge his authority. They ask him, what authority do you have to do these things? And he tells several parables. He tells the parable of the, the two sons. And he says that if you had a son, one of them, when you asked him to go and work in the field, said, no, I'm not going to go, and then did it. And then another son who said, yes, I'll do it, and did not go, which one would you prefer to have? And then Jesus says, in answer to that, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you religious leaders. Because, of course, they were like the other son that said, oh, I'll do it, I'll do all these things, and, and does not do them. There's the parable of the tenants where there's an owner who has land and rents it out and the tenants who are working the land, they, they kill the, the, the son of the owner who comes to collect the rent. There's the parable of the wedding feast where those who are invited to come, they don't come. They're the ones who, who were supposed to be there and they don't come. And so the 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 guy giving the feast, he, he invites people in from, from the street. And all of these are in reference to the religious leadership of, of uh, Judea and their failure to do what they were supposed to do, and that is to be a light to the rest of the world. And so then Jesus tells these seven woes to the religious leaders. And if you think Jesus is always meek and mild, you are wrong. Read Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law. You're like whitewashed tombs. 
You are hypocrites. You are a bunch of snakes. Those are the things he says to them. He, he then laments and weeps over Jerusalem. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He teaches about the end of the age, that there is tremendous conflict coming. There will be tremendous suffering earthquakes and war and false prophets and lawlessness and and then he teaches these judgment parables after that the parable of the talents what do you do with what you have been given and the sheep and the goats and and in chapter 26 after all of this back and forth the religious leaders are ready to kill Jesus it says that they come together and they plot to execute him and so think about Jesus through all of this by the time we get to the the Last Supper, the celebration of the Passover. Jesus has gone through constant conflict and opposition. He has been given all of these questions to fall into traps, and in in return, he has given these parables of judgment, and this must have been absolutely exhausting. And on top of all of that, Jesus knows what is coming. He knows where he is headed. If you know the story, The Lord of the Rings, there's a, a guy named Frodo who's carrying this ring, this terrible evil ring that it must be destroyed. And he's on this long journey and he's with his best friend, Sam. And as he's bearing the ring, he, he says this, I'm, I'm so tired and the ring is so heavy, Sam. And I begin to see it in my mind all the time like a great wheel of fire. I wonder if Jesus, he sees the cross in his mind. He's bowed down by the, the, the weight of it and the weight of what is going to come. And so he leads them to the garden of Gethsemane. And this is quite an ironic place for Jesus to go because, of course, it was Adam and Eve in the original garden, the first garden, the Garden of Eden, where things went so very wrong, when Adam failed to protect his wife Eve from the temptation that Satan put before them. It was Adam who failed in his calling to live joyfully in obedient union with God. Jesus, Paul calls him the second Adam. He is the one who, who fulfills what, was, what the first Adam was supposed to do. And here he is in the garden, he who will atone for Adam's primal sin and all sins that follow. And the task is heavy. He says in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he tells his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, he, he simply says, just, just sit here and pray. And watch with me. And that, that phrase, um, it, it says in the Greek, if, if you look up the word for my, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, it, it actually means afflicted beyond measure. That's how Jesus feels right now. I, I wonder if you have ever felt sorrowful unto death. If you've ever felt afflicted beyond measure. I want you to know that Jesus understands that. 
Jesus was a man of constant sorrows, as Isaiah 53 calls him. Three times, Jesus simply asks his friends to remain and watch, to watch and pray. He, he just wants them to be awake and to be with him. And in being with him and praying for him, he will relieve, they will relieve Jesus' burden, and, um, and yet they cannot do that. Their eyes, Matthew tells us, were, were heavy. May our eyes not be heavy when our brothers and sisters suffer. You know, sometimes all that it takes is for us to be there with them. All it takes is for us to, to pray with them and to express our love for them by simply being in their presence. Peter and James and John cannot do that very simple thing, which is also ironic because just a few verses before, Peter has promised what? That he will die with Jesus, that he will do whatever it takes to be faithful and loyal to Jesus. And so Jesus goes to his father. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He goes back in verse 42, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In verse 44, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Have you ever asked the Father to do something, something that you desperately wanted, that in fact you needed to have happen? Again, you are not alone. Jesus himself experiences this. After pleading for the third time, he comes back, and there they are again, sleeping. He knows that the hour has come. Rise, he says, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he's still saying these very words, Judas shows up, and he has a symbol, a sign to let the guards know who Jesus is, and it is a kiss. You know the phrase, the kiss of death? This is where it originates. The kiss of death. In Dante's Inferno, which is a, an amazing medieval poem, the very heart of hell, the ninth circle, this is the center of the center of hell, where the worst sinners are suffering, it is those who are treacherous, who betrayed loved ones who are there. Have you felt the sting of betrayal? of treachery, has someone you loved betrayed you, Jesus willingly faces this. And somebody grabs a sword, we know that it was Peter from John's gospel. He cuts off the ear of one of the servants. Uh, it, it was a servant named Malchus, John also tells us. And, and even, even in that dark moment when Jesus knows what is coming, he teaches, he continues to teach. He says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Christians, remember, our weapons are not violence. They are prayer, they are argument, they are persuasion, they are compassion. And Jesus had full recourse to violence. He says that he had legions of angels waiting at his command. You know, a legion was 6,000 um, troops. That's 72,000 
angels. As we're going to see on Sunday, one angel is terrifying. He had 72,000. And isn't there a part of us that wishes that he called those 72,000 angels down to wipe out his enemies? And yet, had that happened, who would have been the recipients of that rightful judgment? Not just the people who opposed Jesus then, but the people who are in this room this evening. And so, Jesus has tremendous self-restraint. And as he is being arrested, his closest friends, blind with fear and panic, leave him to face this horror alone. They could not pray with him, and they will not stand with him now. In chapter 27, after a sham trial, there is this this hand-wringing of Pilate as he goes back and forth, and then there comes the final verdict, and he is mocked, and he is scourged, The scourging was a horrific ordeal, pure physical torture. They would use a cat of nine tails, this whip that was had had bits of rock and glass glued to the ends of it, and and the, the whip would wrap around the victim's body and they would pull. And ribbons of flesh would come off. Jesus, bloodied, hemorrhaging, bruised, makes his way to the cross. From noon to 3 p.m., which is the brightest part of the day, on that day, there is complete darkness. And in verse 46, it's a profound statement from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The 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 cried out, when it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, The Greek word is screamed. It's not nice and neat and tidy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He screams it. It It's a cry of abandonment. Like a 40-year-old house in the city that has not been lived in in 20 years that is falling apart. The roof is caving in. The, The glass has been broken by... Many rocks, it's abandoned like a, like a shivering orphan in the slums of Kampala after a rainstorm, drenched and wretched and alone, abandoned. That's what Jesus cries out. Why have you abandoned me, Father? Now, we just studied the Lord's Prayer as a church. One of the lines that is um, the most powerful is the very beginning line, Our Father. And that was novel for Jesus to teach that this God who is so mighty, so powerful that we can approach him in a familial way as dad, that was what he taught his followers to do. And Jesus used it all the time. He says, all things have been given over to me by my father. He says, no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and any to whom the son chooses to reveal him in John. In Gethsemane, he has just prayed, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me three different times. And here the cry of abandonment shifts. This is the only time, the only time that Jesus uses this language when he prays. God. God the other. God the one who is, in this case, 
absent. Jesus cries out as many, many, many before him and after him have cried out in agony, not to a familiar father, but to a God who seems utterly indifferent. Jesus was soaked in the scriptures. He knew them back and front. He's quoting Psalm 22 when he says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Later in Psalm 22, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And this is exactly what Jesus embodies here. He embodies Psalm 22, this cry, this lament. But note also that the man who has been close with the Father from eternity past and throughout his earthly life, he does use the word God, but notice the possessive adjective, my God. Jesus has not lost hope. He does not ultimately despair. He still says, my God. The God who does not answer in this moment, he is still present, even in what feels like complete and absolute absence. I want you to remember this, Christian. Remember this, that no matter how bleak, no matter how desperate your situation is, no matter how much you are suffering, the God who seems absent is in fact present. Though often we cannot begin to understand why things are the way that they are. This is um, a man named Andrew Brunson and his wife Noreen. Uh, Brunson is a pastor in our denomination in the EPC. He's a missionary to Turkey for a long time. He left in the mid-90s to go and be a missionary. He planted churches in Turkey. He was there for over 20 years. And he was working for Jesus. And shouldn't we expect, if we're working for Jesus, things work out really well, right? Well, in, in 2016, he was suddenly, out of the blue, arrested as a suspected terrorist. And I've met Andrew Brunson. Uh, he is not a terrorist. And everyone knew he was not a, a terrorist, yet he was rounded up and put in jail. And he thought he would get out right away. He languished in prison for two years. He had no idea if he would ever get out. He missed his daughter's wedding. And on October 12th, 2018, he was officially convicted of his crime and in the same day was released from prison. It was bizarre and he flew home as quickly as possible. His wife Noreen um, spoke last year at our, our annual conference and, and this is what she said. She said, there's so much more about God's ways that we don't know. And even though we go th through things we don't understand as we are going through them, and there are a lot of questions, in the end we will see that he was for us, that he is good, and that his ways are better. Amen. And 
We know that, don't we, brothers and sisters? We know that that is true. We do not know that that is true because everything works out well according to how we want it to work out. We know this is true because of what happened on this night. We know that this is true because God has dealt with our sins graciously, and it is true that our sins must be dealt with. Richard John Newhouse put it this way, our lives are measured not by the lives of others, not by our own ideals, not by what we, might, we think might reasonably be expected of us. Our lives are measured by who we are created to be, and the measuring is done by the one who creates. The judgment that matters is not ours, but God's, who alone judges justly. And in the cross, we see the gravity of our sin. If you tonight are struggling because you are comparing yourself to someone else and you feel like you fall short and you just wish that you had more of one thing or another, I want you to know that you are not measured by those things according to the only one who judges. You belong to the living God. He alone judges justly. And he has one thing for you to do and one thing only, and that is to live joyfully in response to all that he has done for you. It is to be faithful to him. It is to strive to grow in your faith in Christ. And here's what else is true. Christian, brother, sister, we may feel like the sins that we commit are not so large. The cross is evidence to the contrary. We need to deal with sin. The only way that we will not eternally deal with sin is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the gravity of of our sin. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God will go, he will stop at no, no barrier. There is nothing that will stop him from redeeming his children. Brothers and sisters, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. The battle was finished. It has been accomplished. You and I are the very sons and daughters of God. And no matter what comes, know this. God is for you. He is never against you. Brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven. Jesus finished the job. Let's pray. Father, to do the job was to send your son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. We are so very grateful that he did. Jesus, thank you. Though you desired to have the cup pass from you, you did not veer from the path that led to Calvary. We thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that you too know what it is like to feel alone, to feel despair, to feel anguish. You know what it is like to be opposed at every turn.
you know what it is like to be abandoned. Lord, I pray this evening for all of those who are facing despair and abandonment, who are facing death. I pray that you would bring comfort and peace. I pray that you would help us to trust that no matter what comes, we can know with absolute certainty that you love us, that you are for us, that you are not against us, that you have rescued us from that which we needed rescue the most, our own sinfulness. We praise you this night. In Jesus' name, amen.